if you're able, you remain standing for a moment longer. For our scripture reading this morning, I'm turning to the book of Proverbs. And I'm going to read verses, uh, chapter 14, verses 33 to verse 2 of chapter 15. The book of Proverbs, starting at chapter 14, verse 33, this is the word of our Lord. Wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding, but what is in the heart of fools is made known. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The king's favor is toward a wise servant, but his wrath is against him who causes shame. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We pray that you'd speak to us this morning. Pray that you'd be exalted in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If I counted it right, today we celebrate the 245th anniversary of the founding of our country as an independent nation. And this happy occasion, and the 4th of July was one of those holidays that are uh, great because there's no, we don't have to worry about presents for people, uh, there's not a lot of tension, you just kind of have fun and enjoy each other's company. Um, so this happy occasion gives us good reason to examine God's relationship to the nations, and especially to the United States. And let me start right off the bat by saying that God hasn't made a special covenant with any current nation. So it is not proper to look at the covenantal language used in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and apply it to any language or any nation, including the U.S. Uh, this might be a surprise to you, but America is not the promised land, and Americans are not God's people. Uh, this is not according to the Bible. It would also not be proper to deny that God deals with nations as a whole based on their general attitude toward God and His people. <laughs> So even though God is not in a special relationship with the United States as opposed to other nations, God does deal with nations as they deal with Him and with people. God is not just dealing with individuals in the nations, but with the nations as a whole. And this morning, what I would like to accomplish is, is fourfold. I'd like for us to look at God's relationship to all nations. And then I would like for us to look at God's revealed desire for the nations. What is that His Word says? For the nations. Thirdly, I want us to look at where the United States is in this spectrum of righteousness and shame. With shame being over here, the worst thing you can be, with righteousness being the best nation you can be in the sight of God, where is the United States in that spectrum? And that's the, the spectrum that uh, Proverbs 14 34 gives us. And then I want to end by talking about what do we do about it? What do we do about the situation that we are in? So let's begin by looking at God's relationship to the nations. And the first thing we need to recognize is that God is absolutely sovereign over all nations of the earth without exception. 
There's no nation on the earth over which God is not sovereign. In Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28, we read, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules, present tense, He rules over the nations. It's not something that's future. He's ruling over the nations now. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul embraces this language of ruling, of sovereignty, and he says that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow. That all things in Ephesians chapter 1 were given to Christ, and he rules over all things, and he was given to the church, and he's ruling over all nations for the good of his church. In Proverbs 21 verse 1, the sage, the wise man says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. So the, king, the king's mind, the king's nature, the king's ability to make decisions is in the hands of the Lord. And when you see king here, it's not just talking about monarch, monarchs, but also presidents and governors and premiers and prime ministers. They all are in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it whatever he wishes. No ruler on earth is doing something that's catching God by surprise. Even above that, no ruler on earth is doing something that God did not ordain them to be. And the fact that the nations rebel against God does not change the truth that God is sovereign over them. If you pay attention to the uh, responsive reading of Psalm 2, it talks about the nations uh, getting together and raging against God, and they applauding, how can we overtake God? How can we overtake Him and His Messiah? And the nations get together, and they, they, they come up with all these kinds of schemes in Psalm 2 that, that says that God laughs at them in derision. And in verse 6, it says, despite all this rage, despite all this plotting to overtake me, verse 6 says, yet... I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. All this raging, all this rebellion against me, and yet I've done, I'm doing exactly what I want to do with all the nations of the earth. The nations often rage and plot against God, and yet God's plan are not frustrated at all. God is still accomplishing them in the way that He wants to accomplish, accomplish them. As a matter of fact, often in the Bible, the nations are depicted, are described as the tools in the hands of God. If you were to read Isaiah chapter 10, it talks about Assyria there, and how Assyria, the most powerful nation in the world at the time, they're, they're, he, it was a superpower. Nobody could stand up to Assyria. If Assyria decided they're going to take you over as a nation, you're gone. You're done. There's no, and, and God says, well, Assyria is a tool that I use to punish other nations. Assyria doesn't do anything else than that. And it's specifically in Isaiah 10, verse 15, in talking about the, the nations, he says this concerning them. Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? Or shall, we saw, shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up, or as if a staff could lift it up as if it were not wood. What is, what is God saying? All the na these nations are like the saw or the axe or the rod. Unless I am wielding them, they don't do anything. I, they're just tools in my hands to accomplish my goal. So at the end of the day, 
It's not the United Nations or Joe Biden or Vladimir Putin or AOC or Xi Jinping or Nancy Pelosi or Mitchell McConnell or Emmanuel Macron or Justin Trudeau who are in charge of the world. They're not. God and his Christ are sovereign over all the nations and nothing can change that. Absolutely nothing. And that's why our hope is not in a political party or in military might. Our hope is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. As the psalmist says in Psalm 20, verse 17, some trust in chariots and some in horses. So this is the military power and what the nation can do. But we, we who are God's people, remember the name of the Lord, our God. So God is absolutely sovereign over every nation of the world. He's always been and he will always be. And nothing derails his plan of consummation for the return of Jesus Christ for his church. But not only God is sovereign over all nations, God also revealed in his word what he desires for the nations. And that's where Psalm uh, Proverbs 14 verses 34 and 35 come in. If you have your Bible, look at it again. Proverbs 14, 34 and 35. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The king's favor is toward a wise servant, but his wrath is against him who causes shame. This is a summary. These two verses are not exhaustive, but they encapsulate the Bible's teaching of of God's revealed will for the nations. Everything that happens is God's will, because He's in control of all things. But He also revealed to us in the Bible what are the things that He wants us to do. And in His Word, He has told us that He expects the nations to follow His moral law. In verse 34, he says, righteousness exalts a nation. And righteousness is just a fancy way of saying doing what is right. Righteousness is just following what God says. So God expects, according to Proverbs 14, 34, that the nations, every nation, do what is right. That's his revealed will for them. And what is right is defined in the moral law of God especially in the second table of the law. So we have the Ten Commandments, and uh, often scholars speak of the Ten Commandments and divide into two groups, Commandments 1 through 4. They call it the first table of the law. Those are commandments uh, that regulate our relationship with God. And then Commandments 5 through 10 are called the second table of the law. Those are commandments that relate our relationship to one another. And those are specifically the ones that God expects the nations to follow. They all can be summarized in the love your neighbor command that Jesus uh, refers to in Matthew uh, chapter 22. Thus, uh, God reveals and deals with nations on the basis of their general attitude toward God and his people. And we see that, in, that pattern in the prophecy of Isaiah, where in the first half of the book, in the, in the, uh, if you go to the tens and teens in the chapters, you're going to find chapter after chapter of prophecy of judgment against nations because the way they treated God and his people. We find also that in the pattern of the judgment when Christ returns, 
Jesus will reward or condemn the nations based on their actions and attitudes towards his people. In Matthew 25, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left. And as you keep on reading, that's done based on how they treated God's people. And as a result of a nation submitting to the law of God, that nation is exalted, according to Psalm, uh, Proverbs 14.34. Uh, Bruce Waltke, who is a well-known commentator in the book of Proverbs, says, Ultimately, a nation's exaltation depends on its pity and ethics, not on its political, military, and or economic greatness. It is in the morality of the, nature, the nation that its exaltation is found, not on how powerful that nation is. In history, there, are, there have not been many nations in our modern concept of nations that have experienced this favored status with the Lord of being called an exalted nation because of righteousness. Uh, we can think of a few like Switzerland, the Netherlands, England, Scotland, and the United States. I try really hard to think of other times in history where nations could be called exalted because of their attitude towards God and His people as a nation, and I couldn't come up with any others than these few that I just mentioned. The true greatness of a nation is found in its conduct, being directed by the Word of God in its private life, in its public life, and its international life. And righteous nations are led by leaders who value honesty. Look at verse 35. The king's favor is toward a wise servant, but his wrath is against him who causes shame. Uh, Derek Kigner, a well-thought-of Old Testament scholar, uh, calls verse 35 the efficiency rewarded. But we also could call honesty rewarded. The government officials in a righteous nation, at all levels, establish the moral posture of a nation. Who our leaders are will, will declare what our moral position is. They will, and if you are a righteous nation, the leaders will reward what is good and punish what is evil, according to Romans chapter 13. And honesty in government preserves a nation while dishonesty destroys it. Proverbs 24 29.4 says, The king establishes the land by justice. So that's honesty. But he who receives bribes overthrow it. Dishonesty destroys. Proverbs 16.12, It is an abomination for the kings to commit wickedness, for a throne established by righteousness. A righteous nation, when it is exalted, has honest leaders who thrive in proclaiming and, and, and leading in Honesty. Charles Bridges was a uh, 19th century Anglican Bible-believing scholar, a pastor. And in commenting on the book of Proverbs, he says, What an enemy is an ungodly man to his country. Loudly as he may talk of his patriotism, and even though God should make him an instrument of advancing her temporal interest, yet he contributes so far as, as in him lies to her deepest reproach. Whoever leads us matters. Whoever we elect to office 
matters. Now, we hear an indictment like this, and we rightly think of political figures. You know, uh, when we hear Charles uh, Bridges say, what an enemy is an ungodly man of his country, I say, amen, those politicians, those people that are in office, they are bad, and we want to figure out a way to get rid of them. But this is also warning, is a warning for us as well. What kind of public life are we living? What kind of public life are we living? Are we contributing to the well-being of our society? What role are you playing in the society, in the community that you live in? Or are we just really good at complaining but don't want to take responsibility for the corporate good of our city, of our county, of our state, and our country? What role are you playing in this being a righteous nation that is exalted by the Lord? Again, Proverbs 11, verses 10 and 11 say, When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, perish, there is jubilation. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. Who are you in Proverbs 11? Are you the, the righteous, the upright, through whom the city is blessed? Or are you the wicked in your public life, through whom the city is destroyed? So this is not just for the politicians, the bad, evil politicians up there. That's how we, usually, we tend to think of them. But it's for us. What kind of public life are you living as far as the Word of God goes? Uh, later on in the same commentary, commentary by Charles Bridges, he speaks to Great, he personifies uh, Great Britain, and he speaks to her. And he says this to Great Britain, let the little remnant in, its, in the midst of thee remember their high responsibility. He's talking about the church here. Let them, the, the, the church is the, the, the little remnant that remains in Great Britain. He says, let them take care that their personal and relative profession add to the righteousness, not to the sin of the nation. Let them plead for their country's true prosperity with humiliation, faith, and constancy. Let them labor for her exaltation with more entire union of heart. Is that you in your public life as you seek this to be a righteous nation that is exalted before the Lord? Conversely, in our passage, a nation that defies God and persecutes His people will only bring reproach and shame and disgrace upon itself. Look at the second half of verse 34. But sin is a reproach, and most of your Bibles are going to have a little note next to it, maybe a number one or some sort of footnote saying that reproach could also be shame, disgrace. And it's interesting that it's based on the same word for mercy, but turned on its head, it becomes shame and disgrace there. Again, Waltke says, In its external affairs, a sinful nation, among other things, break treaties, propagandizes, lies, and bullies weaker nations. In its eternal affairs, it allows its judicial system to break down so that criminals and sluggards are rewarded and good citizens are overtaxed and intimidated. That's Waltke's definition of the, the sinful nation that's described here in Proverbs 34. So, the Lord is sovereign over all nations. 
Nothing happens without his end. No, nothing can overthrow his plans. He has revealed to us clearly in the Bible what his desire for the nations are, that they be righteous, that they, that they obey him, and that they protect his people. Now, where is the United States in the spectrum of righteousness and shame? Where do we find our great country in? Well, contrary to pop historians, you know, we talk about pop psychology, pop psychologists, those that kind of say things that are not really true. Uh, so contrary to what, what pop historians want us to believe, the United States was founded on the general ethical principles of the Bible. Not as a perfect country, and certainly led by flawed men who were not able to see some of their own national sins, the greatest of which being slavery. But the American Revolution and the founding of this new country were grounded in the reality that God exists and that His Son is Jesus Christ. That's really a foundational principle in the founding of the United States. That was so much the case that when the Constitution was promulgated in 1787, our second president said, John Adams, he was not president by then, no, he was president later, he said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Our founding fathers assumed that the documents they were creating only, only work in a nation in which people followed the God of the Bible. The Christian religion is part of the warp and woof of the United States from its very foundation. Now we have been blessed with a rich heritage of faithfulness to God in our country, and it's a heritage that we cannot and must not be embarrassed of. Yet, it would be a stretch of the definition of faithfulness if we continue to claim that the United States as a nation, remains faithful to the Lord. If you're claiming that now, you are living la-la land. You're living in some other world that's not this one. The murdering of babies now for 48 years is the law of the land. More people have been killed under the guise of women's health than in all wars in the history of of the earth. A sexual revolution that has been brewing for close to a century has given birth to the LGBTQ plus movement that denies God's goodness in creating humanity as male and female. The, the, the worship of creation has become the norm of the land under the guise of environmentalism. The push for division based on race in the new standard imposed by critical race theory in our educational system, are all things that are clear indicators that this nation is one that's bringing shame and disgrace upon itself. The charge that was that that was once laid upon Israel by the prophet by God through the prophet Isaiah could very well be laid against the United States in Isaiah five verses twenty and twenty one. The, the prophet, that is God to the prophet, says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. 
Doesn't it not sound like something that could be said today about our great nation? The sin of our nation is indeed bringing reproach and shame and disgrace of this great country. We are living on borrowed capital left to us by generations before us, by our forefathers, and we're quickly running out of it. We're quickly running out of it. And this being the case, what should we do? Just sit and complain? Talk about this party or that party? Pastor Lehman used to say, you guys have been here for a while, do you know what saying I'm going to quote from him? What is it? Yes, as goes the church, so goes the nation. Uh, it's 100% true, uh, correct in saying that. This country is in such a state of disrepair because the church has been focused on everything else besides the faithful preaching of God's word with emphasis on the Christ of God. We like to blame everybody else, but first we need to remove the plank, the beam out of own eyes as the church of Jesus Christ. For 200 years, the church in our country has been distracted. Even today, churches who hold on to the inspiration and the inerrancy of the Bible are focused on social justice issues as defined by a heathen society. I, uh, the, uh, the world says, oh, these things are unjust. And he started, instead of looking at those things from the Scripture, the church said, oh, no, the world is saying that things are unjust, so we need to abide by what they are saying. The church is being so distracted by gender issues instead of affirming what the Bible says and just going on with life. The church is just dis- so distracted with overall being woke, while at the same time forgetting the very mission Christ gave his church. Disciple the nations. That's what we're here for. We're not, this might sound wrong to you, but we're not here to feed the poor. We're not here to close those that don't have clothes. We're not here to provide adoption services. We're not here to provide dating services. All these things are great, and Christian people should be doing those things, but the church here is here to disciple the nations. And we as a nation are, is, are in this situation today because we, the church, have forgotten the mission, the very mission that our Savior handed to us. One single thing. We didn't have to worry about anything else. One single thing. Disciple the nations with my word. If this, if this is true, what should we do? I think Psalm 33 verse 12 can be a good starting point for us where there the psalmist says, that's another favorite passage of Pastor Lehman. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And if you read that, it's going to be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, referring to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God who is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Blesses a nation whose God is Yahweh, the people He has chosen as His own inheritance. This verse speaks of Israel's blessedness in having Yahweh as her God, but this principle of blessedness applies to any nation who has Yahweh, the God of the Bible, as her God. And the only way that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, becomes the God of a nation is if the church of Jesus Christ is faithful in preaching God's Word and through it equipping God's people to do the work of the ministry. 
In, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that the ascended Christ is giving gifts to the church. And one of the gifts are pastor teachers who equip the saints with the word of God so that the saints can go out and do the work of the ministry. And this process starts with repentance, humiliation, and prayer. Till we come to our knees in repentance and humility before God, we have no hope of anything changing in this land. Again, the passage I'm going to read next is about Israel. But I think the principles apply to us. When Solomon prays for the dedication of the temple, God responds to Solomon. He speaks to the people of Israel in 1 Chronicles chapter 7. And God says, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name, have you been baptized? Has the name of Christ been placed upon you? Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? That's who you are. The people of God who are called by His name. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and their land. Again, this passage doesn't mean that the United States is God's nation and Americans His people. Yet there is a principle here that applies to the church of Jesus Christ. We, as the people of God, are called to humble ourselves. It's very easy to complain about everything else. But we need to remove the plank, the bar, the beam from our own eye first. We are called to repent from our sins and live in obedience to God's lives. We are called to pray. God will honor our humiliation. God, and, and I mean that. We think of humiliation being a bad thing. We are to be humiliated in the sight of God because of our Sins. In a self-esteem culture, the word humiliation is supposed to be the biggest cuss word you can utter, but it is a biblical word. We are nothing. And if we are not salty told, if we don't taste it, if we're not changing this nation by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are good for nothing but to be trampled on the, on the side of the road, the, the road. God will honor with humiliation our repentance in our prayer. According to the Barner group, there are 80 million adult practicing Christians in the United States. 80 million. So you add children, you're going to add, you're going to arrive at a third, just a little under a third of the population of the United States as practicing Christian. Can you imagine if every one of us turned to God in repentance and prayer? Do you think God would honor his word? I think he definitely would honor his word. The only way. The only hope we have for Yahweh to become the God of our nation is for the church to preach His Word in the power of His Spirit. One of my favorite passages, the most encouraging passage to me as a preacher is Ezekiel 37. The way Ezekiel 37 is, is, it starts with the vision of the dry bones. And Ezekiel is told, go, what do you think? So God starts, Ezekiel, what do you think? You think that uh, if you preach, these uh, dry bones can uh, survive, can come to life? And Ezekiel has, three, no, has had 36 chapters of education. He says, oh, Lord, you know, whatever you want to do, that's... So he says, preach. And, Eze and, and Ezekiel says, well, those bones are dry, and they're very dry. There's no life in them. And Ezekiel preaches the word, and what happens? 
This, the foolishness of the message preached, the foolishness of the exercise of a guy speaking to a bunch of dry bones, the Spirit uses that, and a great army is raised to vindicate the name of the Lord. That's what those dry bones are, is the army of the Lord that's lacking life, and the Word of God through the Spirit of God gives the army of the Lord life. And he then can go, the, the army of the Lord can go then and vindicate the name of the Lord. That's what the church needs to be about. And as the people of God are equipped, as you and I are equipped through the preaching of his word, we go about our lives sharing the gospel with their family, neighbors, schoolmates, co-workers, etc. Anybody in our sphere of influence. Uh, Acts 8, 4 is a it's a great little verse that's almost often missed there. The church in Jerusalem is experiencing great persecution. Paul saw the times creating havoc with the church. And Christians are fleeing from Jerusalem. And in verse 4, Luke drops this little comment. He says, Those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. It doesn't say that they, no, they, they took a call and sat down. It says as they went, as they went through life. You get almost the impression that they're running out of Jerusalem and preaching the gospel to this person and preaching the gospel to that person as they go by. And as God's people respond to God's word, that word proclaimed unabashedly, husbands and wives will love each other with self-sacrificial love as a clear display of Jesus' relationship with His church. Yes, get involved in politics, run for office, vote for the right people, but love your wife. Submit to your husband. That's going to have more power than your vote in changing this country. As the word of God rings forth in the land, parents raise their children in the nurture and the mission of the Lord. And children and adults bring every thought captive to Jesus Christ. That is going to change the land. As the word of God is proclaimed, brothers love brothers as Christ loved them. And the rest of the country will see that peculiar love and says, I want that. I don't know that. I want that. But the church is being so absent and so confused and so distracted that there's nothing for the world to see. And soon the church will be charged. If we do that, if we are revived by the Word of God, if we focus on what we need to focus, the church is going to be charged like the church was in Philippi. These are the people that are turning the world upside down. That has never been said of me. And I dare say it has never been said of you. And yet, that is the power that we hold in the Spirit of God by the Word of God. If you want this to be an exalted nation before the Lord, that's what needs to, to happen. Tertullian was a third century Latin father, the first one of the Latin fathers. So he's living in the 200s, and he's an apologist. He's trying to show people that the gospel is true. And he's quoting a pagan guy writing about the Christian. So we have the Christian pastor quoting the pagan guy who is speaking about the Christian. That's important to keep in mind because the pronouns don't work otherwise. And this is what Tertullian saw the guy writing. He said, look how they love one another. For we ourselves, pagans, hate one another. And how they are ready to die for each other, talking about the Christians. For we, the pagans, are readier to kill each other. Is, that the, is the world seeing that in us? That we, this kind of people, that they'll go, wow, they are different than we are. And we want that. 
I don't think there is any other country in the world where if a person is willing to work hard, he can succeed almost in almost anything. I'm an immigrant. I came here, eventually was disowned by my parents, often had very little money, and the Lord just providentially provided. And I've never wanted, I've never gone hungry. It's, that's obvious, you can just look at me and know that. <laughs> and I have riches in, innumerable compared to other people in the world. That wouldn't happen anywhere else. This is the United States doing. And in part was this idea that every person should have the opportunity to succeed in life, an opportunity that could not be taken by others that led our forefathers in the founding of this country. This idea is immortalized in the glorious, famous sentence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yet, this greatest country on earth is falling very fast from where it once stood. And the only hope it has is for the church. That's not somebody out there. That's us right here to take seriously the commission her Lord gave her. What will exalt this nation is not a wall in the southern border or a pride flag flown in every public building. What will exalt this nation is for its Christian residents, that's you, that's me, to take their profession of faith seriously and live according to the truth that Jesus is Lord. When that happens, when that happens, then Yahweh will be the God of the United States. So I'm putting that on my shoulders. I'm putting that on your shoulders. And yet we're not carrying that on ourselves because our, our burden is on the Lord Jesus Christ. And His burden is light. And His yoke is easy. And you've be, we've been granted the Spirit of God who has strengthened us to do exactly what God calls us to do. May He be exalted in His church so that He may be exalted in the whole earth. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you are God who is sovereign over nations. And we pray that we as your church would live according to that truth and that we'll be faithful to the things you've called us to do to disciple the nations. Father, our hearts are distracted, our minds are distracted. Enable us to focus on the high calling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Enable us to pursue him above everything else. Enable us to follow you and to be a blessing to the country that you've put us in. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.